Amen. Our reading from God's holy word comes from the letter of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 and extending to verse 14. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish that having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer or experience so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, now as we've heard your word read, we humbly submit ourselves to you. For we want to know your word inside and out. We want to know its promises. We want to follow its commands and instructions. We want most of all to behold the beauty of Jesus within it. Come now and send down, O love divine, yes, the Holy Spirit himself. That he might take this word and make it sing. And that our hearts might keep time with the melody of the glorious gospel. So come now and glorify yourself in our midst. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I love that song that we just sang at Ralph. Vaughn Williams' tune, Come Down, O Love Divine. What a glorious hymn it is. I mentioned in the early service that there's too many wonderfully 
marvelous, glorious Holy Spirit hymns that we don't get to sing often enough. And, um, and so I look forward to this Sunday, each year, Pentecost, where we are celebrating and exploring the work of the Holy Spirit specifically in our midst. And we see this morning, even in Galatians chapter 3, that Paul is focused on the Spirit. He's thinking about how we received the Spirit, how we've begun in the Spirit, how the Spirit supplies us what we need in Christ. He's thinking about that as well. It's by God's grace that, these, that this Sunday and this passage pair so well. Maybe you noticed in singing, Come Down, O Love Divine, the, the picture, the symbols, the metaphors of the work of the Spirit. There are two primarily that Vaughn Williams is actually working from in that hymn, two metaphors that we see regularly throughout the Scripture when it comes to the Spirit, and that is the metaphor of light and the metaphor of heat. Uh, we see those two come together in Acts chapter 2, that uh, glorious Pentecost Sunday where Peter is preaching the light, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and appearing above the heads of the disciples as they preach, specifically Peter in that context, is a flaming tongue of fire. That picture of heat and that picture of light is often been contributed in various ways throughout the scripture. We could go back to the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. We could go back to the burning bush. We could go back to all kinds of symbols in the Old Testament. Places where God both was present in the sense of the warmed affection of the presence of God, but also simultaneously revealing a prophetic word, an instruction, a light to his people. Uh, Jonathan Edwards liked to say about preaching that it should have both warmth and light. It should have both the sense of the truth of Scripture being made plain and clear, but it should be delivered in a manner that is warm and is in keeping with the affections of the passage itself, maybe even in keeping with the love of God in the gospel. As the gospel moved forward, as you might have even noted in your own reading of the book of Acts, as it moved forward uh, through various regions that had never heard the gospel before, regions like Galatia where the apostle Paul had preached, Antioch and Derby and Lystra, these are some of the smaller cities there in that area known as Galatia, today would be modern day Turkey. As he preached in those places, there was light and there was heat that came. He preached the gospel and there were then showings of the signs of the Spirit. First manifested in believing hearts that received the gospel light. But also, even as he makes note here in verse 5 of the text before us, there were attending signs of the Spirit. Uh, miracles, speaking in tongues, prophecies. Uh, this is common throughout the book of Acts. Any place in which the gospel was going to be preached for the first time. It was very common for that preaching of the gospel to be started off with the signs or the showings of the Spirit. Now, over a period of time, after the showings of the Spirit and the belief of the people of God and the understanding of the gospel and the possession of the Word of God came, those signs begin to dissipate. And we, we see more regularly in the unfolding of the New Testament and throughout church history 
the consistent, ordinary means of grace, the word, the sacraments, and the prayers as the channels through which the Holy Spirit conducts his work. But as we, as we note that, that is not to say in any way, less shape, or form, that those showings of the Spirit, authentic and real and powerful as they are, are still manifested through the power and the preaching of the word today in light and heat. In fact, every Sunday, we like to call it a mini Easter because we're celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But isn't every Sunday also a mini Pentecost? For the most profound presence in this room right now is not yours and it's not mine. It's the Holy Spirit's. The Spirit of Christ, whom the Father, he says, has sent to us. The one who teaches us all things. The one who will bring to remembrance even the things that Jesus himself taught. When you look at Pentecost, you look at the movement of the Spirit throughout the book of Acts as it enters new regions, the thing that sticks out to you, I think, are those two things. The power, the heat of the gospel as it moved forward by the Spirit, and the light, the truth, as it was unfolded from the Scriptures. Those two things need not be separated, but should always come as a pair. The sense of the light and the sense of the heat. The truth of the gospel alongside the attending power of the Spirit. And as the Apostle Paul actually makes his appeal to the church at Galatia in this passage, he's relying upon both the light of the truth and the heat or the power of the gospel of the Spirit. As he speaks to a church at Galatia who has lost its way. Who has distorted the gospel. Language that he uses back in chapter 1 verse 6. A people who have begun to rely upon works of the law rather than upon hearing by faith. As the apostle Paul seeks to stir up the Galatians to the reality of the gospel again. And bring them back to the truth. He makes his appeal along two lines. And these are the two lines we're going to consider this text under. He makes his appeal through the spiritual experience of the power of the gospel. Their personal spiritual experience of the power of the gospel. He starts there. You know the spirit and you know his heat. You know his power and I want to draw your mind to it. And then secondly, he draws them into the light. He says, I want you to know the scripture's teaching of the truth of the gospel. I want you to know your personal and remember your personal spiritual experience of the power of the gospel. And I want you to know, secondly, the scripture's truth and its teaching with, with which regards the gospel. How it communicates that gospel. These are the two ways we want to look at the text before us. Because I think these are the two ways... That very often, uh, we need to constantly keep in balance when we're seeking to make the gospel known. That there's a tendency in our communication in the gospel to, to dip towards the subjective side. Only our personal experience of the Holy Spirit matters. Or only what the objective truth claims Matters, But here's the reality of the Christian faith. It is a faith of light and heat. It's a faith of truth and experience. It's a faith that is meant to be embodied, to be lived. It's a faith to, that's to be understood in the mind, but it's to be felt by the emotions. It's a faith that is to be 
followed by the will. It's a faith that is meant to capture the fullness and the entirety of who we are. We don't want to so slip off on the subjective side as to elude the objective rooting. But we don't want to so stay within the objective that we don't think about the heart. We want both of those two realities to be at play. And we see the Apostle Paul makes his appeal along the lines of truth that is light and affections or heart that is heat by the Spirit. He starts with this personal experience of the power of the gospel. In fact, he appeals to their memory. Look at how he does it here at these opening questions. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, now maybe you read that initial question that is raised and you think these people witnessed specifically the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't believe that's what the Apostle Paul is trying to say. Believe the Apostle Paul is going back to the very first days that he landed in Galatia. The first days where they heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he came to them, how did he come to them? He came to them portraying Christ and him crucified. He wasn't drawing on a dry erase board. He wasn't, he wasn't throwing up an, a media image. He was painting with words the portrayal of Christ and him crucified, and not merely the physical and graphic details, but the significance of the matter. In fact, the language of public portrayal means this vivid kind of leaving an impression of preachment of the gospel. I left with you, as it were, Christ and him crucified. He goes back and he says, I want you to remember those days. When I came to you, do you remember when you saw him and you beheld him with the eyes of faith? Do you remember when you heard the glorious message of the gospel and you embraced it and you gave yourself wholly over to him? Do you remember those moments? Now, when that moment happened, verse 2, let me ask you this. Did you receive the spirit in that moment by works of the law or by hearing in faith? How did you receive it? And the answer is clear. The Apostle Paul was there and he witnessed it himself. They heard it through by faith. They didn't do anything. They didn't do anything to earn the Spirit. And he says, so if that's the case, if you heard the preaching of the gospel, you embraced it in the hearing of faith and you received at that moment the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and it wasn't something that you earned or garnered by your efforts in order to receive the Holy Spirit, then... Verse 3, are you so foolish then, having begun by the Spirit, that you are now trying to be perfected by the flesh? If, let's put it this way, you walked in the door through hearing of faith, why aren't you walking in the path of continuing to hear in faith? Continuing to trust only in Jesus, continuing to rely only on the Spirit. Why is it that you have now decided, I'm going to be perfected by a manner that's different than the way I was saved? I was saved in the hearing of faith and I had put forth no effort in order to do it. Why do I think I'm going to be sanctified by trying an alternate method, by going back to the religious way, by going back to the works of the law, relying upon human effort? The Apostle Paul is actually using language here of contrast. 
Having begun by the Spirit, are you now going to be perfected? The language here is a derivative of the Greek word telos. It means, are you going now to go to the end through the flesh? And of course, the answer is absolutely not. Question four, did you suffer, or I think better translated, did you experience so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? If all these things, did you just experience them because there was a vanity? Because it's not actually stuck? You've not actually continued on? Well, let me ask you the biggest question of all, verse five. Does he who supplies the Spirit, does God, the Father who sends the Spirit, does he supply the Spirit to you and work miracles among you? Does he do it by works of the law or does he do it through hearing of faith? Well, he does it through hearing of faith. The Spirit is supplied by the hearing of faith. You were saved in the hearing of faith. You are sanctified in the hearing of faith. Are you getting the Apostle Paul's drift? He's locating the entirety of the Christian life. It's salvation and it's sanctification and it's continual provision in hearing in faith and trusting in Christ and being utterly dependent on the Spirit alone. That's the means. That's the means. Now in doing this, the Apostle Paul is is stirring them up by way of reminders, the way Peter would put it, right? He says, I'm stirring you up by way of reminder. I'm causing you to go back and think about your personal experience. And from your personal experience, I'm teasing out for you where the true power comes from. Where salvation came from, where sanctification came from, where all the provision of God has come from, it's come through hearing of faith and not from works of the law. Now by doing this, he's casting, he's teaching us something about the importance of remembering the work of the Lord. He's casting our minds back to memory. You need to go back to the days in which you were first saved, to the moments where the gospel was fresh. You need to retrace your steps. Because you've on this path, you've somehow taken an, a bypath error, we might say. You've wandered away from the very first truth you embraced at the very beginning. I'm causing you, I'm calling you now to retrace your steps. Go back and remember, he's saying to you, people of Cornerstone, professors of faith in Christ. Go back to the days when Christ was fresh to you. The first times that you really heard or understood the gospel and you believed by faith and you knew that joy and you felt the energy and the momentum that came from following Jesus and you did so with joy, willingly laying your life down for him. Now, did all of that come because you earned it? (laughs) Because you worked so hard to conjure it? Or did you find yourself probably sitting back and listening And then being overcome. As if something was acting upon you. Not you acting. That it was God seeking you through the power of the Holy Spirit. It was him who came and transformed you. And he used the means of the gospel. And he used the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, why do you think it's going to be different as you continue on? Go back and remember and retrace. And then... Remember what it is you need to do now in your walk of faith. What happened then? Sometimes in our walk of faith, it turns on us, doesn't it? We're in the midst of 
trusting in Christ and reveling in his grace and seeking to follow in his commands. And somewhere along the way, the freshness, the joy, the newness, the reality of the power of the gospel seems a distant memory. And we decide that we're just going to fall into paying the tithe check and attending church and getting away with volunteering only occasionally in the nursery. We get, in other words, we begin to do the sum total. The sum total of the Christian life becomes little works. Work so, you know, it becomes these little things. Christian life becomes something that you do rather than a power that you live from that's been done in Christ. He says, I want you to go back and think. It's not these works of the law that ultimately build acceptance with the Lord or, or, or greater connect connectability in the, in the body of Christ. It's when the gospel through the spirit in the hearing of faith unites you in the presence of the Lord with one another. That's where the strength and the power and the renewal comes. Don't think otherwise. Don't fall into the old pattern of the works of the law. Jesus is the author of our faith, but friends, he's also the perfecter of our faith. Jesus is not merely the way we get started in the Christian life. Jesus is the way that we're sustained in the Christian life. Jesus is not just the stepping stones that get us through the door of the Christian life. Jesus is the entire path of the Christian life. This gracious and complete dependence upon the Spirit is a moment-by-moment reality in the life of the believer. That's the way Francis Schaeffer put it. In his wonderful little book, True Spirituality, he speaks about the Christian faith as not something that we intellectually assent to, nor a moral code that we abide by, but it is a life-transformative news by which we brace that changes everything about us. And it has to be continually reappropriated in our hearts. Constantly reappropriated in our hearts. Aren't you amazed at how often you have to be stirred up to a message that apparently we know, but constantly forget? Isn't that what's going on here in this passage? This is the discipline of remembrance. He's reminding them, let me cast your eyes back to the moment when Christ was first publicly portrayed before you. Let me, let me help you remember the way things were when you really experienced the power of the gospel. Friends, don't you remember how Israel constantly lost sight of the promises of, of God in the midst of the doing for God? And oftentimes their hearts being divided and separated in doing so, they became forgetful and sinful and lost their way. And it would only be in the remembering that they would be restored to the Lord. Paul is doing the same thing here. And isn't that the wisdom of the Lord's day every day that we come into his presence That this Sunday is going to be like last Sunday and it will be like next Sunday. We will come and in the truth of the Lord, we will indeed hear in some cases new things from the Lord. But in many cases, old things newly fresh to our hearts. And we will, as it were, need it more then than we need it now. The message of the gospel is something you move into And you continue to rehearse. And you bring into every application of your life. It is, as it were, a living message. And thus it needs to live in your heart and mine. This is Paul's challenge to the church at Galatia as he seeks to restore them 
to the joy of their salvation. But he doesn't just simply appeal to their personal experience. He also, and impresses in fairly deeply, he appeals to the scripture's teaching on the truth of the gospel. You see, there's a danger to only think about one's personal experience with the Lord without having the rooting of the objective truth of the scripture as part of the lens through which we understand it. One of the things that makes a Christian unique is that a Christian takes his experience and instead of using his own mind merely as the filter for understanding it, he takes the word and he uses the light of the word upon his experience and he lets the word tell him the reality of the experience. That's critical here. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul does. Notice how he makes this pivot in verse 6. He says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, all of a sudden, here in Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul starts talking about Abraham. We haven't heard anything about Abraham up to this moment in the book of Galatians. We're halfway through it. And this, he's now invoking the Old Testament. Now, quite frankly, it's the first time he's used the Old Testament positively in the book. That is not to mean in any way, stretch, or shape, or form that the Apostle Paul is down on the Old Testament. You're going to see quite clearly in the pages to come and even in the verses to come today, this whole argument is built from the Old Testament scriptures. But he has been attacking a distortion of the Old Testament. There have been those who've been looking at the works of the law, circumcision, the dietary laws, the cleanly laws, what it means to be kosher as a Jew in the presence of the Lord. We've talked about this in weeks past. Those laws have been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ and completely abrogated. But now there's been a group that came into Galatians and says, you know what, you need to keep those to still be accepted. It's Christ and these things. And if you don't follow these things, we're not going to hang out with you at the local cafe. We're not going to eat with you. There's going to be a barrier, a, a dividing wall of hostility is going to still remain. And Paul has been deconstructing this manipulation and false teaching with regards to the Old Testament law. And he's now at a place, having deconstructed it, where he can now begin to rebuild a right view of the Old Testament. And he starts, fascinatingly, with Abraham. And, and this is Paul. I mean, this is Paul being sly, rhetorical, smart, logician Paul. Because I want you to think about the laws that we've been talking about. The circumcision party from a few weeks ago. Remember that exciting party, that great group that came into Galatia to distort the gospel? Well, you remember where circumcision came from in the Old Testament. Well, it came from the story of, of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 17, they were using the story of Abraham. Well, we were like, we're like our father, we're like our father Abraham. <laughs> we 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 are circumcised on the eighth day, and, and we, we follow the commands of God, and we're walking in his covenant, and all of that wonderful language would have been a part of the ongoing dialogue among the false teachers there in Galatia. Now the Apostle Paul, look at what he does, just throws it in, verse 6. You know, all of this justification by faith alone is just like it was for Abraham. Uh oh, really? You mean he wasn't, he wasn't merely a, a law keeper? That wasn't the means by which he gained acceptance with the Lord? No, not by any stretch of the imagination. Remember that Genesis 15 happens before Genesis 17. 
In this passage, he quotes Genesis 15. Genesis 15 is God's covenant with Abraham. It's where he takes uh, Abraham and he says, listen, I'm going to show, show you a place I'm going to take you. I'm just gonna, you get walking and I'm going to show you the place. He takes him a Gentile, not a very special man. He just lived in the Ur of the Chaldees, but he set his love upon him. He took him out. He's going to build a great nation with him. He says, listen, go out and out of your tent at night and try to count the stars. That's going to be the number of your descendants. I'm going to build a huge nation with you. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you. Now, you're going to need a son for this. It's hard to start a nation without a son. You're going to need some progeny. And so I promise that there is going to be a son that comes forth from you and Sarah. Now, Abraham was old. And Sarah was old. Humanly speaking, there was no way that this promise was ever going to be fulfilled. But this promise wasn't given on human terms. This promise was given on divine terms. This was a promise by God, the creator of heaven and earth. And we're told there in Genesis 15, 6, that when Abraham heard that promise from the Lord, he believed God, and in that moment... He was counted as righteous. He was reckoned or charged as righteous. Now let me ask you, did Abraham do anything to be reckoned as righteous? He believed. But wasn't that belief, as Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, a gift from the Lord? So even that was from the Lord, and so all he did was exercise what was already given to him? Then, well, he did nothing. Exactly. Just like it, we're just like Abraham. We were saved just like Abraham. He believed the promise of God by faith and he was reckoned in righteousness. And as you believe in the provision of Christ by faith, you too are reckoned as righteous. You too, in the standing of the Lord, are righteous. You're just, you're just like sons of Abraham. Those who are of faith are the true sons of Abraham. Ooh, that must have stung for the Judaizers. You see, they loved heredity. They loved family trees, biological pedigrees. They loved anything that they could manipulate with regards to earning a standing with the Lord. And what he says here is, no, no, no. That's not where it comes from. This comes through faith. This comes through faith. And Paul begins to take a step further. And he actually begins to unpack for us, I think very beautifully, a remarkable doctrine of Scripture. A remarkable doctrine of Scripture. Look at verse 8. He says, and the Scripture, this is a fascinating verse. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now I want you to see two things as, we're, as we see the points of the scriptural truths of the gospel being illuminated from Old Testament to New. I want you to see two things about his doctor of scripture. I want you to see that for him there is an absolute authority that lies behind the words of scripture. And I want you to see, secondly, there is, there is continuity between the teaching from the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's continuity 
between the teaching of the Old Testament and New Testament. Let me show you this. Look at scriptural authority. It starts this way. The scripture foresees that God would justify the Gentiles. Now let me ask you, does a book foresee? No. It's, it's a metaphor. It's a figure of speech. Who foresee, if a book foresees, who's foreseeing? The author of the book. The author of the book is foreseeing something coming down the pike, which is to say that this book, foreseeing something that's going to take place, is so connected with its author that when this book speaks, the divine person himself is speaking. The divine person himself is speaking. God is speaking when the word is speaking. The Bible so foresees. Now, what is it that the Bible actually sees? Well, here's the continuity. That God would justify the Gentiles by faith. The Bible foresaw the moment that Paul would come into Galatia and he would preach the gospel and Gentiles would believe by faith and would become a unified people with the Jews. It, it foresaw that. How did it foresee that? Genesis 12 verse 3. In you, Abraham, shall all the nations be blessed. That's Genesis 12 3. It's directly out of the Old Testament. It's verse 8 here in Galatians 3. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. No, wait, you mean... Salvation in the Old Testament wasn't just for the Jews? It wasn't always foreseen as just for the Jews? You mean there was always a vision that this would become global for every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation? Absolutely. Where from? From the earliest of days in the Bible. From Genesis 12 on, the Bible has always had the scope that all the families, all nations, and it will all be by faith. Now what's fascinating is the Jews in the first century if you look at rabbinic teaching in the first century, you know how they interpreted this verse? They interpreted it as they, the Jews, were the blessing to the world. So in you, Abraham, and your progeny, you will be a blessing to the earth. You, just because you're in the earth, and I'm using you, you're the blessing. It would be like us saying to ourselves, you know, the church, man, we are such a blessing to the world. We are such a blessing to the world. We're, we're awesome. I mean, who else is doing what we're doing? I mean, we're awesome. Now, as I speak that way, does something strike you a little funny? You're not the church because you're awesome. You're a mess. We're all a mess in here. The only reason you got in was you were bad. It's the only way to get in. All right? It's only the needy, the broken that get in. It has nothing to do with your awesome. You're not the blessing for the world. Christ is the blessing for the world. And you've just been stewarded and entrusted with making that known. You see how it was, it was slippery for the Jews in the first century as they looked over the, the, the text of the scriptures. They read it back on the specialness of their ethnic group rather than seeing the specialness as the promise that is going out to everyone. They, they were, they were the blessing that would be for all the nations. And what here, Paul is saying, no, listen, you've had it turned entirely on the head. The blessing has been the promise that was given to Abraham years ago that's fulfilled now in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the blessing that's going out to all of the world. The Bible has always had a global vision in view. 
Now, as the Apostle Paul is showing us the authority of Scripture, when the Scripture speaks, it's in concert with the divine person. It foresees what's coming down the pike. But also from Old Testament to New Testament, God has had one plan. His plan has been to redeem a people from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation to save them through his promised seed, and he will do it through the instrument of faith. It's that clear. It was clear back in Genesis 3 all the way to Genesis 12 through Genesis 17, Abraham extending through the Old Testament. The problem is we forget. What we forget and we turn it on ourselves. It's what happened in Galatia. It's what happened with the people of Israel over and over again. And isn't it what happens to us on a day-to-day basis and even collectively oftentimes as the church? This is why Jesus could say, if you think Paul may be overreaching, Jesus in John 8 as he's having one of those disputes with the Pharisees. He, he says, I'm greater than all of the prophets and even your father Abraham. And this is when they say, well, now we know you have a demon. <laughs> now, now we know you have a demon. Okay, it's certifiable. Bring in the guys with the white coats. Take him away. Um, you know, he definitely is, is off his rocker. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Abraham saw my day, and he rejoiced in it and was glad. Now, how, okay, how did Abraham see Christ's day? Through the promise. Through the promise of Genesis 15. That through your seed, Abraham, I will make a great nation. You will be a blessing to all the families of the, of the earth. Um, through your seed... And we read at the opening of the New Testament, what? But that Jesus moves through the line of Abraham. He's the seed of Abraham. The seed was not the Jews. The seed was Jesus, which Paul is going to make very clear in the next section in the chapter. And what we're beginning to see is the fact that we too often see a division between the Old and the New Testament. Because we've read it in such a way as to, oh, those old laws and those old promises. Well, that's just, that's just Israelite stuff. Oh, no, no. You, the Gentiles, were always in view from the beginning of God's covenant promises. Oh, God, he was always about law in the Old Testament. He's all about grace in the New Testament. I'm grateful for that. No, Do you see grace deeply rooted here in the promises of the Old Testament? This, this book is a majestic, it's a magnificent book. It's a living book. And the recognitions of its truth, of its authority and its solidarity, its consistency throughout is astonishing. And here the Apostle Paul, as he's making and unfolding it known to the church at Galatia, he says, I want you to see in the end, as you look in the the pages of Scripture, you only have two options. You have the option, as he makes clear in verses 10 and 12, you have the option to live by works of the law. Or you have the option to live by faith. Now, if you live by works of the law, here's the deal. you got to keep all of the laws. And you got to keep them perfectly. He, he who lives by them will ultimately be ruled by them and judged by them in one way, shape, or form. But I have this sense of curse. And maybe you have this, this sense of, of curse. He says this, if you try to live by the law, you will be cursed. You are cursed. He said, it's a status that you're in. Maybe you've experienced that. Where it's like the harder you work to keep, the more you realize you don't. 
And then you get up the next morning and you try again harder with a better plan and a method and it doesn't work and you run out of steam and then you see other things and then you got to do it again tomorrow. You begin to realize that this keeping of the works of the law runs you into a place that's exhausted, it's joyless. If you see yourself lacking contentment, anxiety-ridden, insecure, groping to find foundations somewhere, getting up and thinking everything is a to-do list and everybody's watching you to see if you get it done and you are working by the works of the law. You are, you are wrapped up in the Galatian struggle. He says, if that's you, there's a curse upon you. You're like, I, I can tell. <laughs> it, it feels that way. But even more than that, is the recognition that not only does life feel cursed and you experience the cursedness of that, but that you actually lead to a life that is cursed. There's an eternity that is cursed. That you become the forsaken one. That's what that language means. The one who is cast in the most haunting language of Jesus in the Gospels, cast into the utter darkness, into the place of the cursed. Or you can live by faith. Or you can live by faith. Well, how is it that I can live by faith when I'm under the curse of the law? Jesus came to be the curse for you. To receive it, actually in the language of the, of the Greek, to become cursed for you. He took on your cursedness when, when he was thrown into the utter darkness on the cross. Where he experienced on the cross the utter forsakenness of his father, when he had charged to his account all of the sins that we have committed, and he there voluntarily, though fully obedient, no sins, completely walking in the glory and the obedience of the Lord, voluntarily in love for you and in obedience to his father, took on the fullness of that curse. And when he became a curse for us, he broke the curse for us. It snapped in two. And we who trust in him by faith are now found in him by faith. And the great exchange happens. He takes our sin and experiences the punishment and the penalty of our sins on the cross. And as he breaks the curse, he gives to us his blessing. It's called the blessing of Abraham here. The blessing of his righteousness. We receive what he deserved. He received what we deserved. And he did it out of love for us. When we believe in the truth of that glorious substitution, that glorious exchange, what it begins to happen is all of a sudden we begin to realize, wait, the Christian life, I've had it all wrong. I've been thinking it was a, it was a list of to-dos. It, 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 it was a character study primarily, and then it was a law command to keep. And I've gotten up. Most of, the, most of my days, ticking boxes. And most of them, I don't even get ticked. And I've lived a life that has lacked the joy, that has lacked the power, because I've done it in my flesh and I haven't been relying upon the Lord. And because of that, I am seeing the fruit of religion. I'm seeing the fruit of the loss of grace. And it's feeling like curse. But when I wake up in the morning and I realize that Christ has completely broken the curse for me. 
And there is nothing that I have to do to be able to be approved of by God. And there's nothing that I could do in terms of my weakness of sin to compromise his love for me. Then as I begin to experience the flood of his love and his grace in the gospel, I become a person who now wants to love and follow the God who would love me like that. I become that person. I begin to grow into that person. You know, it's haven't you often found that the more you work on the sins of your life, when you do it in your own power, the worse it gets? You know, it's like getting oil on your hands, you know? And then you go to wash it, and you're like, before you know it, you're up to your shoulders in it. And you're, it's like, well, you know, what do I, what do? I do? Well, what do I do? It, I'm working to clean myself, and the more I clean myself, the more I get it on me. Because the recognition of sin is it's a spiritual battle and you can't fight it in human effort. If you do, you only add fuel to the fire. But when you walk by the power of the Spirit, which is utter dependence, it says there's no way that I can complete what it is that God has called me to do. There's no way. And even in the best days, the, the, the reality is I'm in great need of grace. When you begin to confess those sins honestly with the Lord and solicit for the strength of His Spirit and begin to live in the dependence of the gospel, you know what actually begins to happen? You begin to change. It's the upside-down, counterintuitive kingdom. The weaker you are and acknowledge it, the more you have capacity for the strength of the Spirit. The more you don't trust your own wisdom, but you walk in the foolishness of the gospel, the greater wisdom you have, which is the wisdom of God. It's a complete upside-down, right-side-up world when you're in the gospel. And they had fallen into the wrong kind of foolishness here in Galatia. And Jesus, by His grace... It's turning them right side up to the sanity of the gospel. As the Apostle Paul does this, he says at the very end of this text, he says, all of this is for the blessing of Abraham so that you would receive what? The promised spirit. Isn't it remarkable that Jesus actually says in the gospel of John that it is better for you to have the spirit than for me to be present? It, it is better. It is better for you to have the Spirit than for me to be present. I think most of us hear those words and we just think, ah, he's kidding. <laughs> he's, he's overstating things a bit. Um, he's not. He genuinely believes, because it's genuinely true, that the power of the Spirit that he has given, that the Father has sent from the heavenly places, I want you to imagine this, that same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within you. Have you wanted some resources? Have you needed some strength? What about the power that raised Jesus from the dead? Would that do? You've got it. Now, are you using it? Meaning, are you releasing yourself into it? Are you resting in it? Are you constantly confessing and acknowledging openly that you can't do it in your own power? And that you only... Only by his grace. Apart from you, I can do nothing. But with you, all things are possible. Or do you go into most situations thinking you can lick them and then fall flat on your face? That's what he's talking about here. He says he died to give you that spirit. He broke the curse so you could have that spirit. Don't quench the spirit by trying to do it yourself. Go ahead and admit it. You can't do it. 
But the Lord is pleased to do it in you and through you through his spirit. Rest in that spirit. Call out and cry out for that spirit. He alone is your life and your strength. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, help us to know the wisdom of that, of that phrase, walking according to the Spirit, keeping in step, as Paul will say later, with the Spirit. We want to know what that means. Lord, would you deepen understanding and capacity even right now by the power of the Spirit? As we don't have time to obviously go into the realities of that truth, I just commend that to your Spirit right now. He, he's a much better preacher and interpreter than I could ever be. I trust him in the hearts of your people. And so, Lord, right now, convict us where we need conviction. Where it is that we have really suffocated the work of the Spirit in our hearts because we keep trying to just do it on our own because we think we're smart enough and strong enough. And there's, there's plenty of evidence to the contrary, but we're very slow in learning this. Would you help us in that? Bring, Father, confidence for those this day who know their weakness and know their inability and yet have not been able by faith to really trust the resurrection power within them through the Spirit. Today, change that by your grace. And so, Father, humble those who need to be humbled. Exalt those who need to be exalted. Most of all, glorify yourself in it. And in so doing, we'll look to behold Jesus, the author and, yes, the perfecter of our faith. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.